You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, visit our Patreon at patreon.com backslash metagroup. That's patreon.com backslash M-E-T-T-A-G-R-O-U-P. Welcome, everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment, deepening your practice. It's January 28th, 2021. It's 7.35 p.m. Pacific time. And uh, we've been talking, or I've been talking about uh, Tajapanani, which is a Pali word that means, um, well, uh, Tajapan means uh, constantly going back, and uh, uh, Panati means uh, conceptual reality. Uh, and what the word the intended meaning of the word is that you constantly go back to conceptual reality to ensure that the way that you've created it is accurate and true based on the sensing uh, experience. And uh, the reason it, I'm so caught up uh, in wanting to talk about this lately is because the, the state of our culture has gotten so shifted away from actually these representations that seem to me to be true and accurate. It seems that it's very possible that people get caught up in these wild distortions and they don't seem to be able to detect the distortion. Um, and they tend to believe in, in, in the, the conceptual reality they create without this constant activity of going back and ensuring that the way that you've created that uh, conception of what's happening is uh, accurate and true. So you might even say that this word Tajapanati means the markers of uh, accuracy and, and truth that uh, you use to validate the version of uh, reality that you make out of the pure sensing experience. So you have the object that can be sensed, the capacity to sense it when they meet contact of the sensing experience arises. Uh, it's a it's evaluated for processing speed. That uh, that's what I like to call it. Uh, uh, vagueness, the Pali word, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. But actually, when we look at the Western science of brain times, urgent material is processed faster than a neutral material, which is almost never uh, processed into consciousness. And then pleasant material uh, material takes longer. So it's about three-eighths of a second for urgent material to be processed. Um, but it still doesn't mean it enters into consciousness. When they, when they do these examinations, uh, what they find is that consistently consciousness arises about a half a second after the contact. So the thing about urgent material is it, it's processed faster. Uh, the understanding of what it is happens faster. The intention and action that uh, would be taken in response to it happens faster, and it jumps to the head of the queue. So you can get into these sort of negative or urgent jags because that material always supersedes everything else. Uh, pleasant experience takes twice the intensity and twice the duration to be processed and takes about a half a second to process. Uh, if there's time, if the cue isn't taken up by these more urgent experiences. Then that unfixed, un unattached, unfixated sensing experience is compared to the perceptual database. And if there's a match in the perceptual database that's close enough, then the vibratory, unfixated, present moment experience becomes of uh, this conceptual reality that we then project outward that fills the space around us, uh, which appears solid, uh, appears detailed and in focus. I was trying to think about what a good way to describe what I'm talking about. Um, so let's say you, you, you're walking with a friend and you walk into a room and you, you turn to the friend and you say, so hot in here. And then your friend turns to you and say, oh, really? I'm cold. And what do you do with that? Do you think they're wrong? That your experience is the true experience? 
Do you think, oh, we just have different body uh, temperatures? Or do you begin this process of examining how you made the experience of it's really hot in here? So then you touch into the body and you see that your face is flushed and, uh, and your, your arms are sweating and, and your heart is beating uh, rapidly. And these are the markers that I'm talking about that you use to compare whether or not you've created this version of reality correctly. And then you touch into the body and there's uh, an emotion. Uh, and so let's say it's an emotion of fear, an emotion of shame in the body. You can compare that collection of, 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 of data to what just being too hot is. And you'll see that there's a mismatch in there. Some of those elements would be included in just too hot and some of them wouldn't be. And so then you could further examine what is, what is it that I'm emotionally reacting to that's creating this experience. You can even reflect backwards to the things that had just happened and, and maybe recognize that the friend had said something to you that actually you found embarrassing or frightening. Not a big sense of fear, a subtle sense of fear. Something that didn't really enter consciousness in the way uh, initially, but created this uh, reaction that was below a, a conscious consideration. And then you can begin to adjust your creation of conceptual reality to match more precisely what's actually happening in the moment. But it's this, this uh, rhythm of rocking back and forth between uh, the sensing experience and what you've made it into and looking in the conceptual reality for these markers of experience to see that they're all in accord with the way that you're experiencing uh, the, the reality of the moment. And if there's a discord there, examining it so that you can have them, you can continually modify the experience. Uh, the creation of this conceptual reality, which is in fact quite fluid, you could remake it and uh, and remake it in a way that's more accurate. How is my metaphor? Is that making sense? You following me with that? There. Um, <clears throat> I always like this idea of rocking back and forth. I don't know why. It might be because of, of rocking back and forth between the location of auditory thinking space, which tends to be behind the internal visual thinking space when you, when you pull it out. This movement back and forth. This is what I'm saying to myself. This is the imagery that's associated with it. Then touching down into the body, looking for the emotional component that's there that's supporting the, the sense of realness of it without that sense of emotion, often it can be disconnected or disjointed from an, an actual full experience of what's there, what's real. One of the things about uh, Buddhist practice is, is it's really organized on seeing things clearly. And we, we often talk about it in terms of these three characteristics, the nita, uh, uh, anatta, nicha, and dukkha. Understand clearly what the human condition is and how we live it, and to see what's true and what isn't true. So the idea that we're, we, we will live forever. I was talking to Dan, my teacher Dan, uh, about this, and uh, he was saying that um, there, there's a meditation in the, in the Pitta instructions that he teaches uh, where you, uh, the instruction is to sit the entire day and imagine all the ways in which you can die to the point that you're shaking in fear that you're actually going to die because it can be so difficult for us to grasp this understanding this basic understanding and so i went to a retreat out at the big bear retreat center and i there's a, a 2600 year old tree which is quite massive and has a wonderful place at the bottom of it to sit. So I sat myself down there and for nine hours, I sat there imagining uh, every permutation of how I could die until at the end of the day, I was shaking with fear. It was quite surprising to me because it seemed for half the day, it was just sort of a, 
a delightful exercise to imagine me, my body being ripped to shreds until uh, it finally really sunk in. And so I was talking to Dan, and, uh, and he said that uh, the illness that he now has was not one of the, the many ways that he had contemplated contemplated the possibility of dying, but it, but it looks like that will be the one. And, um, and then he laughed and he said, I don't think any of us really ever think that we're going to die. I mean, you can spend that time imagining all that things. And then depending on, on in some sense, your age and your health, uh, it seems further away, um, which is an inaccurate uh, perception. Um, what is the importance then of, of, of creating this understanding of the nature of things that's accurate and true is because we need to be able to make uh, intention and take action in a way that actually is in, in sync with the way that things are um, so that we create these uh, virtuous uh, karmic traces Whatever your belief is about reincarnation, in traditional, in a traditional Buddhist sense, there's this fundamental belief in karma and this fundamental belief in, in reincarnation, and they operate in tandem in a way. These karmic traces can last not only this lifetime, but in multiple lifetimes coming from the past. If we set that aside and just consider being in this world now in relationship to the people that we're in relationship to, how can we take care of them in a way that's really useful to them? Uh, but how can we be their great boosters and supporters, uh, ensuring that they're able to explore and discover the things that they need to to have a sense of meaningfulness in life? And how, we, how can we have the resources to do that and also to receive that kind of care from other people? We need to be able to know what that is for ourselves and also to be able to feel and know what it is for other people so that we can be of use to them and they can be of use to us in this path, this discovery. Do you have a sense, do you know yourself well enough to know what it is that, that moves you, what it is that you like, what it is that you don't like? And I don't mean that so much on this, this broad um, macro level. I mean when you're sitting in a room and you just notice that your attention is being drawn from object to object, do you have a sense of the hierarchy of objects that you're uh, attending to and what objects that you don't attend to? And do you have a sense that as you gather these objects, these little punch-outs, these little snapshots of the world, that you're using those as the basis of creating this version that you experience? Um, and that it isn't the whole picture, it's the picture of, of your preferences. And that you can really begin uh, to uh, understand that you create the experience that you have based on these preferences and that those preferences can be affected. You have agency in choosing them. If we're unconscious and we don't pay attention to this, then we're likely to simply be responding to the conditioning that we've had. What's appealing, what isn't appealing based on that early conditioning, which may not be an accurate representation of what actually is meaningful. Do you find yourself getting out of bed and pursuing um, the things that, that really excite you, really uh, you find meaningful, or do you find yourself not doing that? Why would that be? Do you have a sense that you know what's meaningful and for some reason it, you, you find that it's out of reach, or do you not even have a sense of what is meaningful? And how would you discover that? How would you... Uh, develop the capacity really to explore the things that are happening 
to you to know how you're choosing these things. There was a passage I remember that was quite, uh, quite um, uh, helpful to me and, and really changed the nature of my practice. Uh, in, in uh, Mahasi describing that when you're distracted from the meditation, you've made the decision to leave the meditation and pursue something that was distracting. And that if you could pay attention to that enough, then in that moment, when you your mind would be pulled into the content of thinking and you would be distracted from the technique, you could recognize that you were making that choice and begin to understand why you were making that choice. And then you could choose to redirect the mind back toward the meditation, back toward the insights that are important. In the West, uh, most of us are householders and not monastics, and so we practice in a very different way than than monastic practice, and there's a preference for all kinds of insights uh, that aren't necessarily linked to that narrow path uh, just to uh, enlightenment. Um, when you read Mahasi, for instance, he's, he's over and over again uh, saying that the only insights that are really worth pursuing are the ones that lead to enlightenment. Yet, when we're sitting uh, as householders often, there's a solution to a work problem. There's a solution to what we're having for dinner that comes up. Um, there's a, uh, all sorts of different insights arise in addition, psychological insights, for instance, in addition to what that is. And in fact, I think in, in the West, uh, it's very difficult to find a place where you could go where somebody would even point out to you what the, the insights uh, for enlightenment were uh, and how to pursue them because often stress reduction or a sense of proving happiness is really what uh, is intended by the practice. Uh, it's quite controversial here actually to uh, for the, the, the teachers that suggest that enlightenment is available to householders and not just to the mass. Um, so, what's true for you and how do you know and uh, can you explore that and see what it is that you're doing actually? How accurate is this representation that you make? Can you tell the difference between the sensing data and the, the, the thing that you make it into? Uh, and can you do it in real time? And can you constantly be looking for the distortion and correcting, moving toward accuracy, toward truth. It is quite alarming to me that uh, that it has or appears to have so little value in our culture at this time. Um, for instance, uh, it isn't required in our news media that the, the news that's presented as true be true. It's not legally required that that be the case. It was legally required, and then the regulations were changed to allow for essentially what is opinion uh, to be presented as if it's, uh, it's a fact. And so you have these levels of disinformation that permeate uh, discourse in our culture, which is not the same as, say, uh, in Canada, where the news actually does have to be truthful, or in Europe, for instance. Fox News doesn't operate in Canada because they can't present content that is in, in accordance with the, the regulations there. They don't operate in Europe for the same reason. And so the level of disinformation in those uh, cultures is not the same as it is in ours. Um, and yet we tolerate this. And what is the reason for that? And why is it that that, that uh, is unchangeable? And sometimes it doesn't matter whether or not you believe something is true if it's true. And it doesn't matter uh, if you don't believe it and it's true. It still remains the same. It's making sense. I, I sometimes think that I'm, um, you know, throwing a 
bucket into the wind, <laughs> just blowing back. <laughs> Try to convey why I think it's so important that we have this accurate sense of things. Um, I know in my own childhood conditioning, um, what went on and uh, and what was said went on were so different. It, it created this very uneasy, uh, almost frightening experience of being alive. Um, and it took so long to unwind that, to really have a sense of, uh, of um, being, any kind of confidence in my own perception of what, what was happening, because I was so often told that I didn't understand or wasn't able to perceive it in the right way. I created a timidity uh, just a, a basic fearfulness, which uh, was very inhibiting in terms of my willingness to really uh, explore. And uh, from the attachment perspective, of course, we're talking about these three basic uh, activities of life that create uh, the sense of meaningfulness. One is the attachment mechanism, where you, you're willing to attach to people, uh, to depend on them, to rely on them, to be authentic in your presentation to them. The second one is this exploration piece where you, you are able to really let yourself in on what's meaningful and then try to go get it, even if it doesn't uh, have, uh, you know, uh, high value in our culture. I saw a, a piece today that said that if minimum wage were uh, raised to $15, that would be equivalent to a, uh, around a $32,000 a year salary. But the basic starting salary for teachers was $34,000. And should people who are flipping hamburgers make the same as teachers? And I was, my reaction to that was, well, maybe teachers should make more, <laughs> not that we should keep minimum wage at 725, right? Uh, how do you live on, how do you teach full time and, and live on $34,000 a year in Los Angeles? You, know, you just, it's, you live with three other people or in a box on the corner. So all of these things are happening. The, the sense of the world that you're creating, the sense of meaning, um, which comes from exploration, which you have to be able to find the time, energy, and resources to do. And the third one is collaborative relationships. Um, the skill of collaborating. We are uh, pack animals. I know we, we say herd immunity, but actually it's pack immunity because we are the apex predator. We are not prey in, on this planet. We live in these complex social groups where a collaboration in some sense is required. We collaborate when we drive down the street, but we don't run into each other. We collaborate in the production of food, of clothing. If we didn't, we would have to, uh, for ourselves, produce all of that. We would have to produce our own clothing, which would mean we would have to produce the fibers that are then made into the clothing, into the fabric that then can be made into the clothing. The, the, the nature of the, the, the depth of this collaboration is, is built in everywhere. There is no survival, really, in the way that we live with without it. And yet we can have this uh, image of, you know, rugged individualism where, where that isn't uh, necessary. It isn't, it's not even remotely true that that's possible. Are you growing all of your food or are you just having it come over from the supermarket, right? It seems so obvious. <clears throat> We cannot exist alone. 
without becoming distressed by it. Uh, we need to be in relationship to other people and we need to be able to collaborate on the nature of those relationships. And if your conditioning doesn't allow for that, then you have difficulty uh, everywhere, really. You can shut off the attachment mechanism and you can explore a kind of solo exploration, but actually you still have to transact your relationships with everybody. You can become wildly dependent on other people, but then you're subject to the conditions that they provide for you, whether you want them or you don't, because you're dependent on them to take care of you, to provide touching into this process of understanding how you've been conditioned and, uh, and how that affects what's meaningful to you and then what it is that you want to explore is this central uh, piece of uh, humanness. And then beginning to figure out a way to organize your life in such a way that you can have the time, energy, and resources that are necessary so that you can be engaged in this meaningful exploration. And the more that you can do of it, of course, the more uh, meaningful life is, the more enlivened you are. And then the vicissitudes of, you know, old age, sickness, and death are, are, are less uh, challenging because you simply overcome a lot of these uh, impediments because the richness of finding meaningfulness. But if you don't know what's meaningful and you don't arrange it so that you can pursue it, then as you uh, age, of course, all of this accumulates and you become less and less willing to do it. We, we have a, 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 an epidemic of despair in older people in this country because they, they don't engage in or don't know what to engage in or can't uh, do it uh, for lack of resources. And all of this really does come down to being able to see clearly what's happening, what's coming in, how are you processing it, and what are you making it into and then projecting it outward. Is still making sense. So then we look at meditation as the, the vehicle for that process. And Vipassana meditation, V means to divide, and Vipassana means to see clearly or to reflect back on. And part of that process is this uh, constant comparing, this constant going back to what was sensed and what was created to make sure that they're accurate and true. So these simple techniques, first to divide up the sensing experience and then to see what you make them into, which is a kind of contemplation. You go into the technique which produces the experience uh, direct experience of the pieces of the sensing process and then uh, watching them come together and then uh, there's an overlay of insight uh, of investigation one of the things that uh, uh, I think that uh, is apparent uh, is that depending on how you practice uh, has a tendency to produce the kind of insight that you experience and so if you use, which I often do, the uh, 16 stages of insight and the, and the commentary that Mahasi Seda wrote about it in terms of how to practice, that tends to produce a series of insights which are organized like that. But when I sit with Dan and he takes us through the elephant path and then um, through uh, lion's gaze and certain other practices, uh, the insights that arise from that practice are really organized uh, by that practice. And it, it's a different set of insights because it's a different path. Um, 
I think I, I say this um, mainly because it, uh, uh, I found it um, at the time that I started sitting with Dan, I was frustrated and and um, and restless with the sameness of my practice, and I was looking forward to uh, an entirely different practice that would be completely new. Uh, and in that way, exciting to explore. And actually, at the end of the, the first retreat, I was disappointed that they were so similar, that, the, that what they were pointing to was were actually pretty much the same. It's just a different uh, facet of the jewel. Because um, I, I had wanted some liveliness uh, to come back into the practice that wasn't there, uh, because I had been practicing and teaching and much of the same thing. So we have the technique that we do, and we do the technique, and we have an overlay of the investigation, the thing that we want to find out by doing the technique. And then as we're doing the technique, we wait for wisdom mind to uh, have the insight arise, and then uh, we step away from the technique to contemplate the insight that's arisen and take in what we can learn from it. And then once we're satisfied with that, we return to the technique. Um, lots and lots of insights come up. In the beginning of practice, it's just a, an endless stream of, in, uh, of insights, some of which are completely fascinating, and some which are quite ordinary. And you attend to them, and attend to them, and attend to them. But uh, the, the Buddha said that you can infer from one insight that insight like it will be similar and so that you don't actually have to attend to every single one that comes up. You can begin to be selective and then begin to focus on the things that you want to understand and, and, and spend time attending to those insights and let uh, the insights that aren't uh, important for furthering your understanding just uh, come and go. So then this is again part of this uh, process of organizing and practice in such a way that you get out of it something that's uh, engaging enough that you want to keep practice. Um, when, when the practice gets uh, dull or routine or the same, then it's important to really pay attention to what it is that you're attempting to discover doing the practice so that you've adjusted in a way that, that you're, you're, you're actually getting that out of it because uh, there are so many competitions for your resources that it's easy to get uh, out of the practice because it hasn't produced enough. Does that make any sense? There are some studies that show that the, the main uh, depth of practice and the main leaps forward in practice happen on retreat not on householder practice. So that's also something to consider. Organizing in such a way that you can go routinely, uh, periodically on retreat, maybe twice a year or, or more. Minimum of, I guess we say once a year, minimum, but often it's not enough. If you were to take time to go on retreat twice a year, that's a lot of time, energy, and resources, even in the COVID period where it's just virtual. Um, how are we going to justify the use of that time, energy, and resources to pursue something like this if it isn't really producing something that actually is helpful in terms of furthering your uh, exploration, for deepening the, the satisfaction uh, of living? And that's why uh, I think it's so important to really attend to organizing practice rather than going along with it, that you really are uh, able to uh, justify the use of those resources in that way. Any questions about all of that? I think that, that's enough of, of what I wanted to say about this. So then let's uh, do a period of practice.
I will uh, we'll begin with a little bit of breath counting to settle the mind and then go into a, a see here feel and I'll take you through the, the different uh, stages just to open see here feel then focus in focus out adding restful states and then those states. Go ahead and take your meditation posture. So, how did that go? questions or comments about it? Jocelyn? Yeah, just overall, like having tiredness in general, like this whole week, I've just been, you know, waking up at three, four o'clock in the morning. So you know, I still wanted to join this practice, but it's a different perspective. When you, you have a different sense of awareness, you can really calm down, but, you know, still notice things going on in your internally and externally. It's a little more calm. So I feel like maybe the perspective will be a little bit more retrospective later on. It'll, it'll hit me later. Okay. Someone else? George, I noticed the flow kind of leaks into all the sense gates when it, there's a lot of flow and feel or see. I'll get it in here and vice versa. Yeah, the flow states can get so uh, pronounced in each of the sense gates that the, the, the barrier between them begins to blur or dissolve, and then it just becomes one big flow state internally there's still the sense of external and then it can become so pronounced that actually the, the barrier between inter, inside and outside also dissolves it's kind of a energy field. Sometimes that, that can be frightening because you have a sense of loss of the body. So it's something that you kind of acclimatize to. And then after you're used to the way that it feels to not be able to really detect your your body in space, uh, it's kind of fun. Someone else? Can you hear me okay, George? Yeah. So I had a question about purpose, attachment, and cooperation. That was the theme I was reflecting on while meditating, even though we were giving the instructions. I was really just concentrating on the connection between attachment, cooperation, and purpose. And I was just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit more, um, like the idea that you know, how does it, uh, how does this purpose emerge out of attachment and cooperation or does you know uh, what how is what is it can you give some reflection on that so you're asking about meaning making yeah well not necessarily meaning making but the felt sense of purpose like uh, the meaningfulness in meditation I was just reflecting, does the meaningful, for me, actually, I got the sense that the meaningfulness in meditation perhaps comes from the sense of being connected to attachment and cooperation. And if one is kind of cut off from attachment and cooperation, then uh, I don't think it's very possible, or for me, in my experience, it's been the, uh, 
the meaningfulness of meditation as purpose doesn't seem to flourish. Okay. Um. I think that there's a that we have this. Um, you know, most of our experience is unconscious. There's very little of it that's conscious. We, we get some indication of what's actually going on uh, consciously, but most of the process is unconscious. When we pay attention to um, conscious experience of it, uh, it, we understand the integration of our, our, our unconscious experiences uh, as being smooth or difficult or all sorts of different kinds of things that can come up um, and, and in the way that we characterize them. What we want to begin to do is listen deeply to that uh, process so that we can uh, consciously understand what it is that, that it has meaning and has purpose for us so that we can then direct ourselves in, in that way. Um, if, you, if you're it's very easy um, in uh, the early conditioning experience to get disconnected from that. And then you're operating in this, this restricted consciousness or conscious experience of self, which may be quite disconnected from what it is that actually is purposeful and meaningful. And you continue. I think that's very common, isn't it? Yeah, no, that seems to be the the most common experience is unconsciousness. Uh, I, I use the example of um, apples, and I don't know if you've heard this story or not, but um, when I was, uh, in 1978 I got sober, and, um, and uh, the first person that helped me there said, Sobriety isn't the end game. Sobriety is meant to, to help you build a bridge back into life and to pursue things that have meaning to you. And I said, what's that? <laughs> and what kind of apples do you like? And I said, I don't really like apples. They're green, they're sour, they hurt my teeth when I bite them. And he said, you're talking about Granny Smith's apples, that's one of many apples. What other kind of apples do you like? And I said, well, you know. We had Granny Smith apples when I was growing up. That's really my main experience of apples. And he said, you're going to go to the Korean deli and you're going to buy a Granny Smith apple and one other apple. You're going to eat them both and decide which one you like better. And then you're going to go back every day and you're going to buy the apple that you like better and one that you haven't tried. And then when you go through all of the apples that they have for sale at the Korean deli, you'll know which apples you like. At that time in New York, like 26 varieties of apples that would have a At the end of it, I like gala apples, and there are two gala apples in my fridge, and I don't like gala apples. I discovered that I like gala apples, and that was what was true for me, and not Granny Smith, which I have not actually bought since 1978. <laughs> and that's true of everything, right? So do you look at meditation as a process of discovering meaning and purpose? I do. That makes sense. But it, it, in the sense that um, you can deconstruct the, the solid sense of the world and the solid sense of self and see what the elements are, and then you can let them reform in a way that's more accurate. Um, I was, you know, um, I'll give you an example. I was a... Uh, Sorry, Greg, it's kind of hard to hear you because there's like a... Very difficult to hear you. There's like a background noise, I think, coming from Jake's microphone. Okay. Uh, I'm going to mute you, Jake, and then I'll unmute you. Thank you. All right, better? <laughs> my family uh, members and my mother and father's reaction to me when I would show up in public was not delight, it was embarrassment. 
Um, and so I became extremely self-conscious that when I showed up, uh, I had to act in a certain way to minimize the embarrassment uh, that people would feel, um, which is not a good way to show up. But I, but I assumed, and uh, because of the conditioning of my childhood, that there was something intrinsically in me that embarrassed them. Um, and it was really not until my high school years that I uh, discovered that actually that wasn't the case for most people. Most people thought I was fine. They weren't embarrassed by me. In fact, many people were delighted to see me. And there was quite a, a, a disconnect from that. But the conditioning was quite deep around that. And so to then to begin to pull that apart and open that up, uh, to see that actually the problem wasn't, wasn't the way that I was, wasn't the way that I am. And so I didn't have to suppress those aspects of myself uh, that weren't appreciated in the way that I, I, I grew up. Um, and then I, then I could have freedom to choose how I presented myself, uh, authentically or inauthentically even though the conditioning was so strongly in favor of an inauthentic you know, uh, presentation. So you may find that, um, and often I hear this, is that the cer certain qualities were uh, appreciated in your early conditioning and other qualities weren't, but the, the, the qualities that were appreciated weren't necessarily the ones that were the most meaningful. But And so you got directed toward the qualities that were valuable to other people and not and then the qualities that were really valuable to you weren't developed. Um, this happens quite a bit in people who are directed career-wise by their caregivers. Or at least that's how I hear about it in my work. Uh, and so really what we want to do is open all of that up and, and, and listen deeply to ourselves to see what it is actually that that motivates us, that's interesting to us, so that that's the direction that we can go in uh, and uh, the, there's a joyful energy that arises around that. Uh, mudita, I think, is the word that is in Pali or synthetic joy, but that when, you, when it's connected to yourself, there's a joyful energy that arises for you to pursue the things that have meaning to you and less so for, for uh, things that don't have that meaning. Which is not, not to say that it, uh, the things that necessarily have that deep meaning to you are also valued by our culture or remunerated by our culture. They often aren't the same. And so you can, of course, pursue the things that the culture values and rewards, but then you have the problem of meaning. A lot of people do a secondary exploration of, uh, of getting resources with the intention of then using it for the primary exploration. But then you'd really, you really have to balance things so that you, you leave time, energy, and resources to do the primary exploration. Or you can settle into the primary exploration and, and uh, uh, acclimatize to the value that society affords it as I used the example of teaching earlier. If you want to be a teacher, we don't reward that very well in our culture. A lot of my friends are teachers, and they teach high school even though they would rather teach college because the pay to teach high school is so much better than the pay to teach college. I think it's so interesting how we do that. Not making sense. Um, someone else? All right. Um, thank you for coming. I'm very happy to teach. Um, uh, this is a particular topic of interest uh, for me, so thank you so much for listening to it. I'm, it's, it's, I haven't talked about it a lot, so I'm uh, beginning to formulate how I want to talk about it. And so thank you for being uh, my guinea pig. <laughs> um,
Saturday, which is in two days, I'm doing the second day long on the uh, meditation and attachment level one class. So that's from nine in the morning until 4 p.m. Pacific time. Um, it's the same link as the link for this. So if you want to come to it, please do. Um, I'm teaching a meditation and uh, attachment for addiction retreat in April with the uh, uh, Portland Dharma uh, Recovery Collective. Uh, that's uh, Saturday from 9 to 4 and then uh, Sunday from 9 to one uh, fifteen, uh, And we'll go through the four modules. We talked about uh, working with addiction um, in four modules. Uh, craving and urging, which is about the thought processes around using stress, anger, and depression, which is the self-generated emotion piece. Persistent negative emotion, which is the somaticized emotional experience. And then difficult interpersonal relationships, which is the attachment piece. We think addiction is an attachment disturbance, and if you don't address the underlying attachment disturbance, it's very hard to maintain uh, abstinence or harm reduction. I am going to be starting a, another meditation and attachment level two class after this. these four day-longs are done, so at the end of March. If you want to, if you're interested in the attachment sub, check into one of these day-longs and then you want to go into a deeper dive into the attachment sub, level two would be the next place to look for that. And then we are going to be doing another virtual retreat in uh, June. I think all of that stuff is up on the website to take a look. I offer this class on a Donna basis. Uh, Donna is the Pali word for generosity, which means I offer the teacher free, the teachings freely. But I do hope that you will make a donation to support me and also that the work that Metagroup is doing. Uh, there's a link for a donation on, on the website and also in an email that we may have sent you. Thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. And we'll, we'll see you soon, I hope. I know. Thanks, George. Hope you feel better. I actually feel fine. I was just sneezing. <laughs> Good. See you next time. Bye.